You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to the sixth lecture in this series on the Theology of the Old Testament. In the previous lectures we have covered the historical books of the Old Testament beginning with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, down to Judith and Esther and 1 and 2 Maccabees. Now we go into the other section of the Old Testament called the Wisdom Literature. And basically the Old Testament you have three segments, three sections. You have the historical books, then you have the wisdom books, and you have the prophets. So we covered the historical books. Now we're going to cover the wisdom books, the seven books of wisdom of the Old Testament. And today we're going to take up the book of Job, the 150 Psalms, which are the prayer book of the church, and then the book of Proverbs, those three. They're called wisdom books in the Old Testament. One of the reasons for that is that they're not explicitly dealing with history or prophecy. They're dealing with a lot of practical issues of how to lead a happy life, dealing with parents, children, husband, wife, material possessions, politics, all of those kinds of things, practical directions of wisdom. So then we have these books, and the first one is the book of Job, which was written probably around the year 500 between 500 and 400 before Christ. Job is one of the first ones to raise the question about the problem of evil in the world. And especially the Deuteronomist held that the good are rewarded in this life and the wicked are punished in this life. They didn't have this vision of reward and punishment in the next life as we do with regard to heaven and hell. It's more based upon this life rather than the next life. The book of Job offers the most profound treatment of the problem of the why evil, and why evil, we find evil in world literature, and this problem of evil is treated more profoundly by Job, perhaps, than by anybody else. The basic theme of the book of Job is the justice or goodness of God, within the context of the suffering of the just man or the good man. And the author questions the traditional view found in some of the Psalms and the, the books of the Deuteronomic history I told you about, that the good prosper and the wicked are punished in this life. The book of Job challenges that. I remember many years ago that there was a play on Broadway that was based upon this. I don't remember any of the details of it, but it was called J.B. Instead of calling it J-O-B, the author called it J-B. And uh, many college campuses subsequently put this on. The story starts with Job as a just man and the court of heaven, and Satan approaches God, and God says, look at my man Job down there, what a fine man he is. He observes all the laws. He's very wealthy. He has a lot of sons and daughters, and he's got a lot of camels and cattle and sheep and goats and all that type of thing because he's a just man. And Satan, the word Satan means tempter. Satan says, well, if you give me permission to go down and 
take these things away from him, he will curse you. And the Lord says, no, he will not. Job is a just man. So he gives Satan permission to harass Job, which he does. And Job is, in a very short space of time, he's robbed of all of his animals, his camels, his sheep, his goats, his cattle. His children are at a big feast and a wind comes, the house collapses and all his sons and daughters are killed. But in all of this, Job never curses God. He has some doubts about it. He says in the first chapter, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we talk about the patience of Job. He had many difficulties. He suffered a great deal, but he never cursed God. At one point, his wife says that he should curse God and die. And he says, no, he refuses to do that. The Lord is good. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, in the drama of this, three of his friends come to him. And here's poor old Job. After he's lost everything, then Satan says to God, well, he's lost his possessions, but if you let me touch his body, then he will curse you. And so the Lord says, okay, Satan, you can go ahead and do that. You can afflict him in his body, but don't kill him. You're not allowed to kill him. So he afflicts him with all kinds of diseases and his skin is coming off and he's boils and putrid and so forth. And he's sitting out in this ash heap. And this is about the time his wife says that he should curse God and die. He refuses to do that. He blesses God and says, and the Lord gave, the Lord take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. About this time, three of his friends show up. These three friends, they're called Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zohar. These three gentlemen. And they come, they sit there and bemoan for seven days, and finally they start debating with him. And their basic point of these three people arguing with Job is that he must be a sinner. Because if you're a sinner, you're going to be punished by God. And Job says, no, I'm not a sinner. I have not offended against God. I'm innocent. And so they argue back and forth, say, well, that can't be, because according to all of our belief, those who are just, are rewarded in this life, and those who are wicked are punished. And Job says, well, I don't know about that. I can't solve that. But he says, I know I'm not a sinner. I've not rebelled against God. God has allowed this to happen to me. I don't know why, but he's allowed this happen to me, and I accept it. He wasn't particularly happy about it, but he accepts it. So we're dealing here in the book of Job as a reflection or a dialogue on the problem of evil which is a problem for all of us. That the main argument of atheists is you know, if you have a good God, why is there such thing as evil in the world? Like cancer and AIDS and war and, and all those kinds of things. But specifically, why do the just suffer in this world? So it's a question about the providence of God who allows the just person and he allows good people to suffer for no apparent reason. We don't understand why that is. This is a very serious theological problem. And what comes out of this in Job, for one of the first times in the Old Testament, is if justice is not obtained in this life, then it must be achieved in the next life. You know, because in the early stages of the Old Testament, they didn't believe in an afterlife. But gradually, as we come down through the centuries, there's a development, and Job is a key factor in that, of belief that since a person is good in this life, the good die young, that there must be a good God is going to reward them. If they're not rewarded in this life, they're going to be rewarded in the next life. So he comes to the realization 
that human reason and wisdom cannot solve the problem of evil. He can't solve the problem. The book does not offer a theoretical solution to the problem of evil. Job's experience is presented not as a way to understand evil, but as a way to live with it through trust in God. So as a result of his experience of God, Job is able to live with evil. And the conclusion of the book of Job is that only faith in God and his goodness makes evil tolerable. So after these three people get through, there's a section on, on wisdom in there. And then another man comes in named Elihu, a younger guy, and he says, you people don't understand the situation. He presents three kind of like sermons or lectures to Job that he's a sinner and he should acknowledge that and God will forgive him. And, and uh, there's no, no response there from Job. In chapter 38, finally God comes in like a whirlwind and says, where were you when the world was made and the depths of the sea and the stars and the sun and so forth? And uh, he just uh, really goes after Job. Job can't understand natural things. He can't understand where the sun came from, the sun, the moon, the stars, how a child is born, where the animals come from, where the trees and the fishes and all that type of thing. And so the Lord says, if you can't understand those things, how do you expect to understand my dealings with human beings? So Job submits himself to the Lord. He totally submits himself. We read in uh, chapter 42, Job says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be hindered. I have dealt with great things that I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I cannot know. I had heard of you by word of mouth, but now my eye has seen you. Therefore I disown what I have said, and repent in dust and ashes. So if he offended in any way, he repents in dust and ashes, and then God bans Satan, and he restores twofold or fourfold everything that Job had had before, the camels and so forth, and he gets more sons and daughters, and he's restored abundantly to what he had before he went through this trial. So it's a story of God testing. God tested his faith, just as he tested the faith of Moses. He tested the faith of Abraham in the book of Genesis. He tests uh, Job, and Job withstands the test. He remains faithful to God. So it's a book about living with evil, and there are intimations here that the just who suffer in this life are going to be rewarded by God in the next life because they're not rewarded in this life. So that's the first book of wisdom in the Bible. It's followed by the 150 Psalms. They are considered, the Psalms are prayers of poetry. They are considered as part of the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Now there are 150 Psalms First one's written by David, probably one-third of them by David, maybe 50 psalms. And they were more of them were written from the year 1000 down to 250. So about 750, 800 years, the psalms were composed. But since David was the initiator of them and the greatest of all the psalm writers, they're all attributed in one way or another to David as the author of them. Remember that psalms are poetry and they're meant to be sung. They were used in the liturgy of the temple in Jerusalem. And that's before the destruction of the temple in Babylon. And then in the second temple, later on, the temple that was built later on after their return from Babylon, 
more psalms were written about their history. There, there are certain types of psalms. Some of them have to do with the praise of God. So the main theme of the psalms is that the Lord God of Israel reigns supreme and almighty over the heavens and the earth. He's the Lord of history and shows special care for his people Israel, whom he saves from our enemies. So he's the savior of Israel. He's our fortress, our God. There are two ways to live or two types of human beings. This is where you get into the wisdom psalms. The good and the wicked, the just and the unjust. The former keep God's law as known through the covenant with Moses. The latter trust in themselves and ignore God and his commandments. Now you have a number of different types of psalms. You have, first of all, psalms of praise of God for creating the universe, for his beauty, for his glory, for his goodness, and uh, for his goodness to Israel. Then you have psalms of uh, lamentation, uh, especially after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Psalms of lamentation, of moaning, of the evils that people have suffered because of their sins, asking God for his forgiveness. So those are what they're called psalms of lamentation. Then you have psalms of thanksgiving, thanking God for the sun, the moon, the stars, for the wind, for the ice, the snow, the heat, the food, all the various things that, that the air that we breathe, everything that you can think of is mentioned in the psalms as God is thanked for those things. Then you have what are known as royal psalms, which have to do with King David, the enthronement of the king, the glory of the king, the reign of the king, the unity of Israel because of the king, those types of things. So those are kind of four basic areas that you have with regard to psalms. They're minor types also. Now the basic structure of most of the psalms is very simple. It runs like this. First of all, right in the very beginning, it states the theme of praise or thanks or lament. That comes right in the first verses. Secondly, then it gives the reasons for the invocation, why this invocation or thanks or praise is being made. Thirdly, it states what God has done or has not done for the one that's invoking him. And finally, at the conclusion of the psalm, there's a repetition of the theme with the assurance that God will respond favorably to his people who have trust and they have confidence in him. And it's important to remember that all the psalms are prayers. They're meant to be prayed, not just studied. They're not like secular poetry. They're prayers, and for that reason, they're incorporated into the liturgy of the church. All our masses use uh, verses from the psalms. And the priests, as you know, read the breviary or the liturgy of the hours every day. I read it every day. It's the psalms. The old breviary, we did all 150 psalms every week. The new breviary, they're spread out over four weeks. So all four weeks, priests reading the breviary go through the 150 psalms, and these psalms give expression to every kind of human emotion you can think of. Sadness, joy, thanksgiving, rejoicing, all of the various emotions are included there, plus the four kinds of prayer. You know, there are four kinds of prayer, adoration, thanksgiving, petition, and satisfaction. We find all four of those in the psalms. One thing I might mention for those of you, you're studying the Old Testament, the Psalms, there are five books of Psalms. 
they're called five books. The first book is from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41, and at the end of each book, there's a praise of God. And then the second book is 42 to 72, that's the second book. The third book goes from 73 to um, 89, Psalm 89. The fourth book is Psalm 90 to 106. And then the fifth book is Psalm 107 to 150. The first Psalm deals with happiness, and there you have the contrast between the just and the unjust, where the psalmist says, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So he meditates day and night on the law of the Lord, and therefore he stays close to the Lord. His mind and his heart and his actions are guided by God's will, and he will enjoy happiness and fulfillment in life. Now the fundamental idea in many of these Psalms is dependence on God for life, for food, and for security. And the same notion is found in the word righteous or just. Thus, the righteous are those who acknowledge their basic dependence on God by obeying His law, especially the first commandment of giving worship to the Lord alone. And the Psalms repeat often the idea that God will not abandon those who trust in Him. There's the contrast between the wise man and the fool, the just man and the wicked person. A key idea that runs through most of the Psalms is the everlasting love of God. It's translated in different ways. His merciful love, His loving kindness. The Hebrew word is chesed, chesed. Uh, his loving kindness and His fidelity, His faithfulness. Any promise that God makes, He keeps. He loves His people. He's merciful. He can also be a God of wrath for those who are sinners and refuse to repent. But the dominant notion is the loving kindness of the Lord as extended to all people, but especially to his people Israel. I'd like to point out that in the New Testament, the Psalms are quoted more often than any other book of the Old Testament. There are many, many quotes of the Psalms. Jesus himself quotes the Psalms. He sang the Psalms at the Last Supper, the various collections of Psalms, and the, the prophecies in there. There are many, many references to the Psalms in the New Testament. As I mentioned, they run all the way through the liturgy of the church, and the breviary that the priest reads. Uh, I'll give you a few psalms. Psalms of praise that uh, you might want to look up would be Psalm number 8, Psalm 96, and Psalm 122. Those that stress praise of God. Psalms of lamentation and sorrow are Psalm 44, Psalm 3, and Psalm number 51, which is the famous penitential psalm, Miserere, which is attributed to David, his sorrow after his committing a sin with Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah. He gives expression to his repentance in Psalm number 51, which is sung and prayed by the church every week on Friday. Thirdly, we have Psalms of thanksgiving and confidence in God. That Psalm, most everybody knows, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's Psalm 23, and it's also Psalm 136 is just as an example of those that give thanksgiving to God. The royal psalms, which have to do with David and his appointment as king and his son as Christ, as the king forever, are especially are Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. 
Those are two what are called two messianic psalms. Those are royal psalms. There are psalms that emphasize wisdom. The very first song about the wicked and the just that I just quoted, and the longest psalm is 119. Psalm 119 is one is, that I'm very fond of. It has 176 verses in it. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so every eight verses, they all begin, the first eight begin with A, the second eight with B, and the third eight with C and so forth. Eight verses, they all begin with the same letter. It's called an acrostic, A-C-R-O-S-T-I-C. -C. An acrostic psalm goes all the way through the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet which gives you 176 verses. Every one of those verses praises the law of God and mentions His law in one way or another. Statutes, law, word, and so forth. It's every verse gives praise to God for His law and for His wisdom. Then there are a few other types of psalms, like some that are, have to do with prophets and they're historical psalms. Psalms 105 and 106 go over the history of Israel. So that's a very brief presentation of the wonderful 150 psalms which the church prays every month over a four-week cycle. The third uh, book today to consider of the wisdom books is the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. It was completed probably in the 5th century, written in Hebrew, and it's attributed to Solomon. Many of these wise sayings go back to Solomon. The two long sections in here of wise sayings. Usually there are two-line proverbs in the book of Proverbs that are attributed to Solomon. And the main theme of the book of Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear here means not anxiety for some evil that you might experience, but fear here means reverence and respect for God because He's almighty and transcendent. He's majestic. He is loving kindness. He's the one who created us. He's the one who sustains us. Our whole being is dependent upon him. It's fear in that sense of reverence. And so the author says that several times and the other wisdom books say that also, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The first nine chapters are an essay on wisdom. And there you find a personification of wisdom treated like a person that's close to God, and in the liturgy sometimes this is attributed to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and also there's influence here on St. John's Gospel in the beginning of the Gospel where he, he refers to Jesus as the Word of God, and St. Paul refers to him later on as the wisdom of God. This personality, it becomes personified in the first nine chapters. After that, you have a collection of 375 short statements of wisdom, of Proverbs, they have to do with practical things in one's life. Dealing with others, avoiding too much drink, avoiding too much talking, uh, avoiding loose living uh, men and women, being honest, telling the truth, respect your parents, that uh, wives and husbands should be faithful to each other. Those kinds of notions are repeated over and over again in the book of Proverbs. So it's a summary of practical wisdom. Practical wisdom. So these Proverbs are wise sayings, usually brief, which communicate knowledge or insight about right living. Usually, many of them are two lines. They're synonymous Proverbs and antithetical. That is, they say the same thing over again in different words, 
or they'll say the just man in one verse and the wicked man in the next. And so these Proverbs have to do with morality. Now, part of this book is that all true wisdom comes ultimately from God. It doesn't come from human beings. It's found in the laws of nature and it's found in the Torah of Moses. That's where you find wisdom. The law of nature, the natural law, which we call in philosophy, and the Torah. And there you have the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, and things like that. So certain themes in the book of Proverbs keep coming back, especially with regard to the tongue, keeping the tongue under control. Uh, not easily trust others and be careful about what kind of friends you develop. Avoid women of loose morals, excessive drinking of wine, and the company of fools, and it urges the practice of virtue. So that kind of gives you an idea of the book of Proverbs. Now the book of Proverbs is very influential on the New Testament. It's quoted at least 14 times in the New Testament. It influences the eight Beatitudes, that our Lord gives in Matthew 5, the wisdom of God in St. John's writings, in the letter of St. James, he uses Proverbs in giving practical advice on how to lead a good life in this world. Also, St. Peter and St. Paul offer practical advice for virtuous living, some of which is borrowed from the book of Proverbs. So if you pick up the book of Proverbs, you find many practical things in there that's fairly easy to understand and it's very easy to read. It's one of the easier books of the Old Testament to read, and it's very reassuring and educational as far from a moral point of view to read and study and pray over the book of Proverbs. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.